Book Three, Chapter Four of Marcella. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Chenevere. Marcella by Mrs. Humphrey Ward. Book Three, Chapter Four. Marcella, on her way home, turned into a little street leading to a great block of model dwellings which rose on the right-hand side and made everything else, the news entrance opposite, the lines of squalid shops on either side, look particularly small and dirty. The sun was beating fiercely down, and she was sick and tired. As she entered the iron gate of the dwellings and saw before her the large asphalted court, round which there ran blazing heat on the one side of it and on the other some children playing cricket against the wall with chalk marks for wickets. She was seized with depression. The tall yet mean buildings, the smell of dust and heat, the general impression of packed and crowded humanity, these things, instead of offering her rest, only continued and accented the sense of strain called for more endurance, more making the best of it. But she found a tired smile for some of the children who ran up to her, and then she climbed the stairs of the E block, and opened the door of her own tenement, number 10. In number 9 lived Minta Hurd and her children, who had joined Marcella in London some two months before. In sets 7 and 8, on either side of Marcella and the Hurds, lived two widows, each with a family, who were mostly out charring during the day. Marcella's association allowed its district nurses to live outside the home of the district on certain conditions, which had been fulfilled in Marcella's case by her settlement next door to her old friends in these buildings, which were inhabited by a very respectable, though poor, class. Meanwhile, the trustees of the building had allowed her to make a temporary communication between her room and the herds, so that she could either live her own solitary and independent life, or call for their companionship as she pleased. As she shut her door behind her, she found herself in a little passage or entry. To the left was her bedroom. Straight in front of her was the living room with a small close range in it, and behind it a little back kitchen. The living room was cheerful and even pretty. Her art student's training showed itself. The cheap blue and white paper, the couple of oak-flapped tables from a broker's shop in Marchant Street, the two or three cane chairs with their bright chintz cushions, the Indian rug or two on the varnished boards, the photographs and etchings on the walls, the books on the tables, there was not one of these things that was not in its degree a pleasure to her young senses that did not help her to live her life. This afternoon, as she opened the door and looked in, the pretty colors and forms in the tiny room were as water to the thirsty. Her mother had sent her some flowers the day before. They were on the tables, great bunches of honeysuckles, of bluebells, and banquisa roses. Over the mantelpiece was a photograph of the place where such flowers as Meller possessed mostly grew, the unkempt lawn, the old fountain and gray walls of the cedar garden. The green blind over the one window which looked into the court had been drawn down against the glare of the sun as though by a careful hand. Beside a light wooden rocking chair, which was Marcella's favorite seat, a tray of tea things had been put out. Marcella drew a long breath of comfort as she put down her bag. Now, can I wait for my tea till I have washed and dressed? 
She argued with herself an instant, as though she had been a greedy child, then, going swiftly into the back kitchen, she opened the door between her rooms and the herds. Minta! A voice responded. Minta, make me some tea and boil an egg. There's a good soul. I will be back directly. And in ten minutes or so she came back again into the sitting-room, daintily fresh and clean, but very pale. She had taken off her nurse's dress and apron, and had put on something loose and white that hung about her in cool folds. But Minta heard, who had just brought in the tea, looked at her disapprovingly. "'Whatever are you so late for?' she asked a little peevishly. "'You'll get ill if you go missing your dinner.' "'I couldn't help it, Minta. It was such a bad case.' Mrs. Hurd poured out the tea in silence, unappeased. Her mind was constantly full of protest against this nursing. Why should Miss Boyce do such funny things? Why should she live as she did at all? Their relation to each other was a curious one. Marcella, knowing that the life of Hurd's widow at Mellor was gall and bitterness, had sent for her at the moment that she herself was leaving the hospital, offering her a weekly sum in return for a little cooking and house service. Minta already possessed a weekly pension, coming from a giver unknown to her. It was regularly handed to her by Mr. Hardin, and she could only imagine that one of the gentlemen who had belonged to the Herd Reprieve Committee and had worked so hard for Jim was responsible for it, out of pity for her and her children. The payment offered her by Miss Boyce would defray the expense of London house rent, the children's schooling, and leave a trifle over. Moreover, she was pining to get away from Mellor. Her first instinct after her husband's execution had been to hide herself from all the world, but for a long time her precarious state of health and her dependence first on Marcella, then on Mary Harden, made it impossible for her to leave the village. It was not till Marcella's proposal came that her way was clear. She sold her bits of things at once, took her children, and went up to Brown's buildings. Marcella met her with the tenderness, the tragic tremor of feeling from which the peasant's wife shrank anew, bewildered, as she had often shrunk from it in the past. Jim's fate had made her an old woman of thirty-two. She was now a little shriveled, consumptive creature with almost white hair, and a face from which youth had gone unless perhaps there were some traces of it in the still charming eyes and small open mouth. But these changes had come upon her she knew not why, as the result of blows she had felt but had never reasoned about. Marcella's fixed mode of conceiving her and her story caused her from the beginning of their fresh acquaintance a dumb irritation and trouble she could never have explained. It was so tragic, reflective, exacting. It seemed to ask of her feelings that she could not have, to expect from her expression that was impossible, and it stood also between her and the friends and distractions that she would like to have. Why shouldn't that queer man, Mr. Strozzi, who lived down below and whose name she could not pronounce, come and sit sometimes of an evening and amuse her and the children? He was a professor of elocution, and said and sung comic pieces. He was very civil and obliging, too. She liked him. Yet Miss Boyce was evidently astonished that she should make friends with him, 
and Minta perfectly understood the lift of her dark eyebrows whenever she came in and found him sitting there. Meanwhile Marcella had expected her with emotion, and had meant, through this experiment, to bring herself truly near to the poor. Minta must not call her Miss Boyce, but by her name, which, however, Minta, reddening, had declared she could never do. Her relation to Marcella was not to be that of servant in any sense, but of friend and sister, and on her and her children Marcella had spent, from the beginning, a number of new womanish wiles, which, strangely enough, this hard strenuous life had been developing in her. She would come and help put the children to bed, she would romp with them in their nightgowns, she would bend her imperious head over the anxious endeavor to hem a pink cotton pinafore for Daisy, or dress a doll for the baby. But the relation jarred and limped perpetually, and Marcella wistfully thought it her fault. Just now, however, as she sat gently swaying backwards and forwards in the rocking-chair, enjoying her tea, her mood was one of nothing but content. "'Oh, Minta, give me another cup. I want to have a sleep so badly, and then I am going to see Miss Hallin and stay to supper with them.' "'Well, you mustn't go out in them nursing things again,' said Minta quickly. "'I've put you in some lace in your black dress, and it looks beautiful.' Oh, thank you, Minta, but that black dress always seems to me too smart to walk about these streets in. It's just nice, said Minta with decision. It's just what everybody that knows you, what your mamma, would like to see you in. I can't abide them nursing clothes, nasty things. I declare, cried Marcella, laughing but outraged. I never liked myself so well in anything. Minta was silent, but her small mouth took an obstinate look. What she really felt was that it was absurd for ladies to wear caps and aprons and plain black bonnets, when there was no need for them to do anything of the kind. "'Whatever have you been doing to your cheek?' she exclaimed suddenly, as Marcella handed her the empty cup to take away. Marcella explained shortly, and meant it looked more discontented than ever. "'A lot of low people as ought to look after themselves!' That was how, in her inmost mind, she generally defined Marcella's patience. She had been often kind and soft to her neighbors at Mellor, but these dirty, crowded Londoners were another matter. "'Where's Daisy?' asked Marcella, as Minta was going away with the tea. "'She must have come back from school.' "'Here I am,' said Daisy, with a grin, peeping in through the door of the back kitchen. "'Mother, baby's woke up.' "'Come here, you monkey!' said Marcella. Come and go to sleep with me. Have you had your tea? Yes, lots, said Daisy, climbing up into Marcella's lap. Are you going to be asleep a long time? No, only a nap. Oh, Daisy, I'm so tired. Come and cuddle a bit. If you don't go to sleep, you know you can slip away. I shan't wake. The child, a slight, red-haired thing, with something of the ethereal charm that her dead brother had possessed, settled herself on Marcella's knees, slipped her left thumb into her mouth, and flung her other arm round Marcella's neck. They had often gone to sleep so. Mrs. Hurd came back, drew down the blind further, threw a light shawl over them both, and left them. An hour and a half later, Minta came in again as she had been told. Daisy had slipped away, but Marcella was still lying in the perfect gentleness and relaxation of sleep. 
You said I was to come and wake you, said Minta, drawing up the blind. But I don't believe you're a bit fit to be going about. Here's some hot water, and there's a letter just come. Marcella woke with a start. Minta put the letter on her knee, and dream and reality flowed together as she saw her own name in Wharton's handwriting. She read the letter, then sat flushed and thinking for a while, with her hands on her knees. A little while later she opened the herd's front door. Minta, I am going now. I shall be back early after supper, for I haven't written my report. There, now you look something like, said Minta, scanning her approvingly, the wide hat and pretty black dress. Shall Daisy run out with that telegram? No, thanks. I shall pass the post. Good-bye. And she stooped and kissed the little withered woman. She wished, ardently wished, that Minta would be more truly friends with her. After a brisk walk through the June evening, she stopped, still within the same district, at the door of a house in a long, old-fashioned street, wherein the builder was busy on either hand, since most of the long leases had just fallen in, but the house she entered was still untouched. She climbed a last century staircase adorned with panels of stucco work, slender Italianate reliefs of wreaths, ribbons, and medallions on a pale green ground. The decoration was clean and cared for, the house in good order. Eighty years ago it was the home of a famous judge who entertained in its rooms the legal and literary celebrities of his day. Now it was let out to professional people in lodgings or unfurnished rooms. Edward Hallen and his sister occupied the top floor. Miss Hallen, a pleasant-looking, plain woman of about thirty-five, came at once in answer to Marcella's knock and greeted her affectionately. Edward Hallen sprang up from a table at the farther end of the room. "'You are so late. Alice and I had made up our minds you had forgotten us. I didn't get home till four, and then I had to have a sleep,' she explained, half shyly. "'What? You haven't been night-nursing?' "'Yes, for once. Alice, tell them to bring up supper, and let's look after her.' He wheeled round a comfortable chair to the open window, the charming circular bow of last-century design, which filled up the end of the room and gave it character. The window looked out on a quiet line of back gardens, such as may still be seen in Bloomsbury, with fine plane trees here and there just coming into full leaf and beyond them the backs of another line of houses in a distant square, with pleasant irregularities of old brickwork and tiled roof. The mottled trunks of the plains, their blackened twigs and branches, their thin beautiful leaves, the forms of the houses beyond, rose in a charming medley of line against the blue and peaceful sky. No near sound was to be heard, only the distinct murmur that no Londoner escapes and some of the British Museum pigeons were sunning themselves on the garden wall below. Within, the Hollands's room was spacious and barely furnished. The walls, indeed, were crowded with books, and broken, where the books seized, by photographs of Italy and Greece, but of furniture proper there seemed to be little besides Hallen's large writing-table facing the window, and a few chairs placed on the blue drugget which brother and sister had chosen with a certain anxiety, dreading secretly lest it should be a piece of self-indulgence to buy what pleased them both so much. On one side of the fireplace was Miss Helen's particular corner. Her chair, the table that held her few special books, her work-basket with its knitting, her accounts, 
There, in the intervals of many activities, she sat and worked or read, always cheerful and busy, and always watching over her brother. "'I wish,' said Hallin, with some discontent when Marcella had settled herself, "'that we were going to be alone to-night. That would have rested you more.' "'Why, who is coming?' said Marcella, a little flatly. She had certainly hoped to find them alone. "'Your old friend, Frank Levin, is coming to supper. When he heard you were to be here, he vowed that nothing could or should keep him away. Then after supper one or two people asked if they might come in. There are some anxious things going on. He leant his head on his hand for a moment with a sigh, then forcibly wrenched himself from what were evidently recurrent thoughts. "'Do tell me some more of what you are doing,' he said, bending forward to her. "'You don't know how much I have thought of what you have told me already.' "'I'm doing just the same,' she said, laughing. "'Don't take so much interest in it. It's the fashion just now to admire nurses, but it's ridiculous. We do our work like other people, sometimes badly, sometimes well, and some of us wouldn't do it if we could help it. She threw out the last words with a certain vehemence, as though eager to get away from any sentimentalism about herself. Helen studied her kindly. Is this miscellaneous work a relief to you after hospital? he asked. For the present. It is more exciting, and one sees more character, but there are drawbacks. In the hospital everything was settled for you, every hour was full, and there were always orders to follow, and the off-times were no trouble. I never did anything else but walk up and down the embankment if it was fine, or go to the National Gallery if it was wet. And it was the monotony you liked? She made a sigh of assent. Strange, said Helen. Who could ever have foreseen it? she flushed. "'You might have foreseen it, I think,' she said, not without a little impatience. But I didn't like it all at once. I hated a great deal of it. If they had let me alone all the time, to scrub and polish and wash the things they set me to do at first, I thought I should have been quite happy. To see my table, full of glasses without a spot, and my brass taps shining, made me proud as a peacock. But then I had to learn the real work, and that was very odd at first. How? Morally? She nodded, laughing at her own remembrances. Yes, it seemed to me all topsy-turvy. I thought the sister at the head of the ward rather a stupid person. If I had seen her at Miller, I shouldn't have spoken two words to her. And here she was, ordering me about, rating me as I had never rated a housemaid, laughing at me for not knowing this or that and generally making me feel that a raw probationer was one of the things of least account in the whole universe. I knew perfectly well that she had said to herself, Now then I must take that proud girl down a peg, or she would be no use to anybody, and I had somehow to put up with it. Drastic, said Helen, laughing. Did you comfort yourself by reflecting that it was everybody's fate? Her lip twitched with amusement not for a long time. I used to have the most absurd ideas. Sometimes, looking back, I can hardly believe it. Perhaps it was partly a queer state of nerves. When I was at school and got in a passion, I used to try and overawe the girls by shaking my speaker great-uncle in their faces. And so in hospital it would flash across me, sometimes in a plaintive sort of way, 
that they couldn't know that I was Miss Boyce of Mellor, and had been mothering and ruling the whole of my father's village, or they wouldn't treat me so. Mercifully I held my tongue, but one day it came to a crisis. I had had to get things ready for an operation, and had done very well. Dr. Marshall had paid me even a little compliment all to myself. But then afterwards the patient was some time in coming to, and there had to be hot water bottles. I had them ready, of course, but they were too hot, and in my zeal and nervousness I burnt the patient's elbow in two places. Oh, the fuss and the scolding and the humiliation! When I left the ward that evening I thought I would go home next day. But you didn't? If I could have sat down and thought it out, I should probably have gone. But I couldn't think it out. I was too dead tired. That is the chief feature of your first months in hospital. The utter helpless fatigue at night. You go to bed aching, and you wake up aching. If you are healthy as I was, it doesn't hurt you. But when your time comes to sleep, sleep you must. Even that miserable night my head was no sooner on the pillow than I was asleep. And next morning there was all the routine as usual, and the dread of being a minute late on duty. Then when I got into the ward, the sister looked at me rather queerly, and went out of her way to be kind to me. Oh, I was so grateful to her. I could have brushed her boots or done any other menial service for her with delight. And then, somehow, I pulled through. The enormous interest of the work seized me. I grew ambitious. They pushed me on rapidly, everybody seeming suddenly to become my friend instead of my enemy, and I ended by thinking the hospital the most fascinating and engrossing place in the whole world. A curious experience, said Helen. I suppose you had never obeyed anyone in your life before. Not since I was at school, and then not much. Helen glanced at her as she lay back in her chair. How richly human the face had grown! It was as forcible as ever in expression and color, but that look, which had often repelled him in his first acquaintance with her, as of a hard, speculative eagerness, more like the ardent boy than the woman, had very much disappeared. It seemed to him absorbed in something new, something sad and yet benignant, informed with all the pathos and the pain of growth. "'How long have you been at work today?' he asked her. I went at eleven last night. I came away at four this afternoon. Helen exclaimed. You had food? Do you think I should let myself starve with my work to do? She asked him with a shade of scorn and her most professional air. And don't suppose that such a case occurs often. It is a very rare thing for us to undertake night nursing at all. Can you tell me what the case was? She told him vaguely, describing also in a few words her encounter with Dr. Blank. I suppose he will make a fuss, she said with a restless look, and that I shall be blamed. I should think your second doctor will take care of that, said Helen. I don't know. I couldn't help it. But it is one of our first principles not to question a doctor. And last week, too, I got the association into trouble. A patient I had been nursing for weeks and got quite fond of had to be removed to hospital. She asked me to cut her hair. It was matted dreadfully and would have been cut off directly she got to the ward. So I cut it, left her all comfortable, and was to come back at one to meet the doctor and help her get off. When I came, I found the whole court in an uproar. The sister of the woman, who had been watching for me, stood on the doorstep and implored me to go away. 
the husband had gone out of his senses with rage because I had cut his wife's hair without his consent. He'll murder you, nurse, said the sister. If he sees you, don't come in. He's mad. He's been going round on his hands and knees on the floor. Hallen interrupted with a shout of laughter. Marcella laughed, too, but to his amazement he saw that her hand shook and that there were tears in her eyes. It's all very well, she said with a sigh, but I had to come away in disgrace, all the street looking on, and he made such a fuss at the office as never was. It was unfortunate we don't want the people set against the nurses, and now Dr. Blank. I seem to be always getting into scrapes. It is different from hospital, where everything is settled for one. Helen could hardly believe his ears. Such womanish terrors and depressions from Marcella Boyce. Was she, after all, too young for the work? Or was there some fret of the soul reducing her natural force? He felt an unwanted impulse of tenderness toward her, such as one might feel towards a tired child, and set himself to cheer and rest her. He had succeeded to some extent when he saw her give a little start, and, following her eyes, he perceived that unconsciously his arm, which was resting on the table, had pushed into her view a photograph in a little frame which had been hitherto concealed from her by a glass of flowers. He would have quietly put it out of sight again, but she sat up in her chair. "'Will you give it to me?' she said, putting out her hand. He gave it to her at once. Alice brought it home from Miss Rayburn the other day. His aunt made him sit to one of the photographers who are always besieging public men. We thought it good. It is very good, she said after a pause. Is the hair really as gray as that? She pointed to it. Quite. I am very glad that he is going off with Lord Maxwell to Italy. It will be ten days' break for him at any rate. His work this last year has been very heavy. He has had his grandfather's to do really as well as his own, and this commission has been a stiff job too. I am rather sorry that he has taken this new post. What post? Didn't you hear? They have made him under-secretary to the Home Department, so that he is now in the government." She put back the photograph and moved her chair a little, so as to see more of the plain trees and the strips of sunset cloud. "'How is Lord Maxwell?' she asked presently. "'Much changed. It might end in a sudden break-up at any time.' Helen saw a slight contraction pass over her face. He knew that she had always felt an affection for Lord Maxwell. Suddenly Marcella looked hastily round her. Miss Hallen was busy with a little servant at the other end of the room, making arrangements for supper. "'Tell me,' she said, bending over the arm of her chair, and speaking in a low, eager voice, "'he is beginning to forget it?' Hallen looked at her in silence, but his half-sad, half-ironic smile suggested an answer from which she turned away. "'If he only would,' she said, speaking almost to herself, with a kind of impatience. He ought to marry for everybody's sake. I see no sign of his marrying at present," said Hallen dryly. He began to put some papers under his hand in order. There was a cold dignity in his manner which she perfectly understood. Ever since that day, that never-forgotten day, when he had come to her the morning after her last interview with Aldous Rayburn, come with reluctance and dislike, because Aldous had asked it of him, and had gone away her friend, more drawn to her, more touched by her than he had ever been in the days of the engagement, their relation on this subject had been the same. 
his sweetness and kindness to her, his influence over her life during the past eighteen months, had been very great. In that first interview the object of which had been to convey to her a warning on the subject of the man it was thought she might allow herself to marry, something in the manner with which he had attempted his incredibly difficult task, its simplicity, its delicate respect for her personality, its suggestion of a character richer and saintlier than anything she had yet known, and, unconsciously revealing itself under the stress of emotion, this something had suddenly broken down his pale, proud companion, had to his own great dismay brought her to tears, and to such confidences, such indirect askings for help and understanding, as amazed them both. Experiences of this kind were not new to him. His life, consecrated to ideas, devoted to the wresting of the maximum of human service from a crippling physical weakness, the precarious health itself which cut him off from a hundred ordinary amusements and occupations, and especially cut him off from marriage, together with the ardent temperament, the charm, the imaginative insight which had been his cradle gifts, these things ever since he was a lad had made him again and again the guide and prop of nature stronger and stormier than his own, often the unwilling guide, for he had the half-impatient breathless instincts of the man who has set himself a task, and painfully doubts whether he will have power and time to finish it. The claims made upon him seemed to him often to cost him physical and brain energy he could ill spare. But his quick, tremulous sympathy rendered him really a defenseless prey in such matters. Marcella threw herself upon him as others had done, and there was no help for it. Since their first memorable interview, at long intervals, he had written to her and she to him. Of her hospital life till tonight she had never told him much. Her letters had been the passionate outpourings of a nature sick of itself, and for the moment of living, full of explanations which really explain little, full too of the untaught pangs and questionings of a mind which had never given any sustained or exhaustive effort to any philosophical or social question, and yet was in a sense tortured by them all, a thirst for an impossible justice and a flame for ideals mocked first and above all by the writer's own weakness and defect. Hallen had felt them interesting, sad, and in a sense fine, but he had never braced himself to answer them without groans. There were so many other people in the world in the same plight. Nevertheless, all through the growth of friendship one thing had never altered between them from the beginning, Hallen's irrevocable judgment of the treatment she had bestowed on Aldous Rayburn. Never throughout the whole course of their acquaintance had he expressed that judgment to her in so many words. Notwithstanding, she knew perfectly well both the nature and the force of it. It lay like a rock in the stream of their friendship. The currents of talk might circle round it, imply it, glance off from it. They left it unchanged. At the root of his mind towards her, at the bottom of his gentle, sensitive nature, there was a sternness which he often forgot. She never. This hard fact in their relation had insensibly influenced her greatly, was constantly indeed working in and upon her, especially since the chances of her nursing career had brought her to settle in this district within a stone's throw of him and his sister, so that she saw them often and intimately. But it worked in different ways. Sometimes, as tonight, it evoked a kind of defiance, 
A minute or two after he had made his remark about Aldous, she said to him suddenly, I had a letter from Mr. Wharton today. He is coming to tea with me tomorrow, and I shall probably go to the house on Friday with Edith Craven to hear him speak. Helen gave a slight start at the name. Then he said nothing, but went on sorting some letters of the day into different heaps. His silence roused her irritation. Do you remember, she said in a low, energetic voice, that I told you I could never be ungrateful, never forget what he had done? Yes, I remember, he said, not without a certain sharpness of tone. You spoke of giving him help, if he ever wanted it of you. Has he asked it? She explained that what he seemed to be asking was Louis Craven's help, and that his overtures with regard to the labor, Clarion, were particularly opportune, seeing that Louis was pining to be able to marry, and was losing heart, hope, and health for want of some fixed employment. She spoke warmly of her friends and their troubles, and Helen's inward distaste had to admit that all she said was plausible. Since the moment in that strange talk which had drawn them together, when she had turned upon him with the passionate cry, I see what you mean perfectly, but I am not going to marry Mr. Wharton, so don't trouble to warn me, for the matter of that he has warned me himself. But my gratitude he has earned, and if he asks for it I will never deny it him. Since that moment there had been no word of Wharton between them. At the bottom of his heart Hallin distrusted her, and was ashamed of himself because of it. His soreness and jealousy for his friend knew no bounds. If that were to come on again, he was saying to himself now as she talked to him, I could not bear it. I could not forgive her. He only wished that she would give up talking about Wharton altogether. But, on the contrary, she would talk of him, and with a curious persistence. She must needs know what Hallin thought of his career in Parliament, of his prospects, of his powers as a speaker. Hallin answered shortly, like someone approached on a subject for which he cares nothing. Yet, of course, it is not that. It is injustice, she said to herself with vehemence. He must care. They are his subjects, his interests, too. But he will not look at it dispassionately, because— So they fell out with each other a little, and the talk dragged. Yet all the while Marcella's inner mind was conscious of quite different thoughts. How good it was to be here in this room, beside these two people. She must show herself— fractious and difficult with Helen sometimes, it was her nature, but in reality that slight and fragile form, that spiritual presence, were now shrined in the girl's eager reverence and affection. She felt toward him as many a Catholic has felt towards his director, though the hidden yearnings to be led by him was often oddly covered, as now, by an outer self-assertion. Perhaps her quarrel with him was that he would not lead her enough would not tell her precisely enough what she was to do with herself. End of Book 3, Chapter 4